Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. We are currently engaged in a verse-by-verse exposition through the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Is my intention to finish the book of Romans this morning. Today is December 22nd, 2019. We began the book of Romans on December 23rd, 2018. And so it's been one day shy of a year to get through the book of Romans. But that also means that it is the Christmas season. I'm always amazed and amused to watch what goes on in the world at this particular season of the year because most of the Western world is going to pause this week in order to celebrate the birthday of someone they don't even think existed, of someone who certainly they don't acknowledge. They don't acknowledge his power, his authority. They don't acknowledge him as the son of God. But they get a holiday 
and they get to spend a lot of money and exchange gifts. And so for that reason, they're willing to give some kind of tacit approval of the idea of Jesus, especially if they can put him in a little manger scene out on their front lawn. Let's be reminded for just a moment that just like what Micah just read, that Jesus was indeed a baby in a manger, but only for a moment. He was a baby in a manger once in all human history. I'm more concerned with who he is now. For instance, the book of Colossians, chapter 1, starting in verse 14, he's described by Paul this way. For he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. In whom, that son, we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. And he, that son, is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. For by him, by Christ, all things were created, both in heaven and in earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace Through the blood of the cross, through him, I say, whether things on earth or whether things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind and engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before himself holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in this faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. That's who you're dealing with. He was a baby in a manger at one point. And each year, we who are Christian, we take this opportunity to celebrate the fact that he was indeed born. But now that he has been born, he is our redeemer. He is our savior. He is the one who took the wrath of God in our place. He is our substitute. 
He is our advocate. He sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Everything that exists existed because of him. It exists by him and by his power. And it continues to exist by his ability to continue to keep everything existing. And the only reason that you exist is because he existed first. Not only is he the firstborn of the resurrection, he is the firstborn of all creation. He is the only one who matters. He is the only one, the superior one. He is the holy one. He is the righteous one. He is the one on whom everything else hangs and everything else exists. He's not just a babe in a manger anymore. He's the one who you need to get down on your face in front of. You got that? Okay, that was my Christmas message for 2019. (laughs) All right, turn to the book of Romans. Turn to chapter 16. Chapter 16 can kind of be broken down. If we were outlining the chapter, we would break it down under four subheadings. First, Paul commends some people and says hello to some people who are at Rome. After that, he takes a few minutes to talk about those who would say or teach anything different than what he himself has taught. Third, he is then saying hellos from the people who are with him. And then he finishes the chapter with a bit of a doxology that actually works like a benediction after everything else that he has written to them. The first part of chapter 16 is Paul taking the time to say hello to various people in Rome, and he starts out by mentioning Phoebe. Now, you would think that just by mentioning people at Rome, there shouldn't be any controversy at all, but there is. Right away when he mentions Phoebe, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church, which is in Sancria. The word servant of the church is the Greek word diakonos, the word from which we get deacon. And there comes the controversy, because this is one of the places where Paul refers to a woman as diakonos, as a minister, a servant of the church. She is probably the person who is carrying this letter that we know as the book of Romans. She's probably the one who carried the letter to Rome. And so Paul speaks very, very highly of her and says, you should receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and that you should help her in whatever matter she may need of you. For she herself has also been a helper of many and of myself as well. We don't know anything about Phoebe outside of that. We don't know what exactly she did for Paul or how she helped Paul that would account for his glowing reference to her. So is he actually saying, I'm sure you're all wondering now, so is he actually saying that she is a deacon in the church? The fact is this word diakonos can mean to minister, 
can mean to be a helper or a servant in the church, but I don't believe that Paul is establishing Phoebe in the office of deacon here. And the reason I say that is when Paul gets to Rome, he's going to write what we know as the prison epistles. And among the last things that he writes, he writes to Timothy and he writes to Titus. And he lays out the requirements to be an elder or a deacon within the church. And in order to hold either of those offices within the church, you have to be male according to what Paul says. So either Paul is very, very contradictory and writes a letter to Timothy saying that deacons and elders have to be men and then turns around and says to Rome, but Phoebe doesn't count. She can be a deacon if she wants to be. I don't believe that Paul is that confused in his theology. I believe that what Paul is saying is that she did, in fact, serve, did, in fact, minister within the church. What that tells you is women can indeed serve. Women can indeed be helpers in the church. Women can indeed be servants of the church. What they can't do, according to Paul's theology, is hold the office of deacon. But I know that in the history of even GCA, there have been several women I can think of through the years who have been phenomenally helpful to the church and to me, who have kept this enterprise going and who have had phenomenal faith and commitment to the things of the Lord. And that seems to be the case with Phoebe as well, and therefore Paul would give her this kind of recommendation, that when she arrives at Rome, that the saints in Rome would give her whatever help she needs because she's been a faithful servant of the church. So you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and you help her in whatever matter she may have need of you, for she herself has also been a helper of many and of myself as well. She's been a helper, therefore help her. She has been a servant of the church, therefore now serve her in whatever things she might have need of. Then greet Priscilla and Aquila. Prissa and Aquila, it says here, They are my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. Do me a favor, if you would, Tom. Real quickly, look up Acts 18.2. Because at that point, you're going to see a direct reference to this same Priscilla and Aquila, who seem to move in and out of Paul's life at several different times under several different circumstances. When Paul was in Corinth... He actually lived with and worked with Priscilla and Aquila. Tom is going to read that for us. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Then Claudius rescinded that order, and he allowed the Jews to come back home So in that gap of time between when Paul was in Corinth working with Priscilla and Aquila and when he wrote this letter to Rome, in that gap of time, Priscilla and Aquila went back to Rome. And so Paul could say, 
Greet Priscilla and Aquila. I think the reason they're right at the top of the list is they really were that close friends with Paul. But also because they were around Paul, they had a great wealth of theological, doctrinal information, so much so that they were able to correct Apollos in the things that he was teaching. So they are a couple that kind of come and go throughout Paul's life. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, who are my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risked their own necks. We don't know anything about that. We don't know when they did that. We don't know what that situation was. We just simply know that it is true because Paul references it here. Greet them because they risked their own necks. To whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. So this is a Jewish couple who all the Gentile churches owe thanks because they kept Paul going. Because they were helpers, workers with Paul. And then verse 5 says, and also greet the church that was in their house. Now, I've told you before that there was a couple of churches in Rome. There was the Jewish church and there was the Gentile church. This appears to be the Jewish church that was meeting in their house. In a moment, Paul is going to turn to the Gentile church that is also meeting in Rome. Greet Epinatus, my beloved, who is the first convert of Christ from Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junius. That's probably a couple. The name Junius can be male or female. They are my fellow kinsmen, meaning that they are also Jewish, and my fellow prisoners, which means at some point when Paul was going through his imprisonments, his jailings, probably early on, that they also were prisoners with him, or it may mean that they are prisoners of Christ, prisoners of the work, that they are servants and slaves to Christ. In any case, Andronicus and Junius are fellow kinsmen with Paul, fellow prisoners who are outstanding among the apostles. Did Paul just say that Andronicus and Junius are now apostles? Well, no, you have to understand what the word apostles, apostolos, really means. It means sent one. And anybody can have a sent one. If I send Micah to go get something out of my car, he technically at that time is my apostolos. He has gone out to the car at my sending. You understand that? But then also it's possible that what Paul was saying is, Because they are Jews, because they know the apostles, the apostles have witnessed their faith and have found them to be outstanding. And therefore, they are outstanding among the apostles. So it depends which way you want to read that. Paul may be saying, they are sent ones that I have sent out myself. Or he may be saying that among the apostles, they have a superior sort of reputation. They were also in Christ before Paul was. Before Paul came to faith, before he had his Damascus Road conversion, before any of that, 
these two had already come to faith in Christ. How could that be? Well, it could only be because they had heard the gospel from one of the other apostles. So that may give a little credibility to the notion that their reputation was very good among the apostles. Greet Andronicus and Junius, my kinsmen, my fellow prisoners who are outstanding among the apostles who also were in Christ before me. Greet Ampelitus. He is my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and Stachys, my beloved. Greet Apellus, the approved in Christ. And greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. So he may be referring to another house church, or he may be simply saying, I love the family of Aristobulus. I know them all. So greet his whole household. Don't just greet him, but greet all of them for me. Greet Herodian. Again, my kinsmen. Greet those of the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, again, possibly a couple, but they are workers in the Lord. And greet Persis, the beloved, who has worked hard in the Lord. Now, some of these people have already been mentioned in other places by Paul himself. These are people with whom he seems to have a long-standing relationship. He has great love and affection for these people and for their commitment, for their devotion to the things of Christ. Turn to 2 Timothy 4. A moment ago, I had Tom read a bit of Paul's words about Priscilla and Aquila, but now I want to read a larger section of 2 Timothy 4, just so you can see that Paul seems to know all these people quite intimately. I'm going to start in chapter 4, verse 9 where Paul is giving here at the end of the very last letter we have from Paul. This is just before he is finally martyred. He is writing final instructions to Timothy, and he says, Make every effort to come to me soon, for Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus has gone to Dalmatia. Only Luke is still here with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. But Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak which I left at Troas with Carpus and the books, especially the parchments. Alexander, the coppersmith, did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. And be on guard against him yourself, for he vigorously opposed our teaching. Hold on to that notion for a moment. He vigorously opposed, not me personally, he vigorously opposed the teaching, the doctrine, what Paul had already taught. In a moment, he's going to say in the book of Romans, mark those who teach anything other than what you've already received. And of course, you know, in the book of Galatians, he wrote that if anyone comes, even an angel or a letter as if by us teaching anything other than what you have received, let him be accursed. And so several places, 
Paul has had to warn people that there is going to be a fallacious doctrine. There is going to be a change, a warping of what he has taught according to the appetites of men. Here again, he has said, be careful about this Alexander the coppersmith, which, by the way, I like the fact that Paul named names there. He said, be careful of him because he withstands the teaching Not that he withstands Christianity generally. He withstands this teaching of Christianity. In other words, he's kind of making up his own as he goes along. He vigorously opposed our teaching, our doctrine. At my first defense, the first time that Paul was in Rome, no one supported me. But they all deserted me. But may it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me, and he strengthened me in order that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished, and that all the Gentiles might hear, and I was delivered out of the lion's mouth. And the Lord will deliver me from every evil deed, and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Priscilla and Aquila. And the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, but Trophimus I left sick at Miletus. Make every effort to come before winter. Eubulus greets you, and also Pudens and Linus and Claudia with all their brethren. That, by the way, places this Pudens and Linus and Claudia. At Rome. Now Paul is going to say hi to those same people. Go back to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 16, verse 13. Greet Rufus. History tells us that this Rufus is the same as the Pudens that is mentioned in 2 Timothy. In fact, His name is Rufus Pudens Pudentia. He is, in fact, the son of a senator there in Rome, and he himself rises eventually to be a senator. He is married to Claudia, who is mentioned in Timothy. In a moment, Paul is going to bring up the family relation, which is Rufus is a choice man in the Lord, so greet his mother And mine. Again, a big source of controversy. Preachers and commentators argue about in what way Rufus's mother is also Paul's mother. They'll say that she is spiritual mother to Paul, that perhaps at some point she had ministered to Paul, except that she's in Rome. So as he's moving through the Mideast, it's kind of hard to figure out in which way she actually was a spiritual mother to Paul. The language equates the motherhood of her to him and to Rufus. That was a terrible sentence, but I'll say it again. If you just read it in the Greek, Paul is saying she is mother to Rufus and she is mother to me. Now, people have tried to dig into the history of how that could be so. Perhaps 
She had Paul, who is a free Roman citizen, don't forget, which implies that his father would have been a free Roman citizen. His mother could have been a Jewess. He may have died. She may have remarried. And in her remarrying, she gave birth then to this Rufus Pudens, which would mean she married a Roman senator. That means that Paul has an inn in the household of Caesar. It means that Paul, when he argued that he was a free Roman citizen and could take his case all the way to the highest court in Rome, nobody could argue with that because, after all, he's connected. And God very cleverly chose him to bring the Gentiles the gospel. Somebody who not only was raised a Hebrew of the Hebrews, somebody who not only knew the law intimately, but somebody who also had Gentile connections, making him the perfect person to take the gospel to the Gentiles. God got really lucky. God knew exactly what he was doing in choosing him. So greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord, and also his mother and mine. Greet a syncretus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrabus, Hermas, and the brethren who are with them. Greet Philologus and Julia, perhaps a couple, Nerus and his sister, and Olympus and all the saints who are with them, and greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. That is the end of the segment where Paul is saying hello to particular people in Rome. Now, I am committed to and have been for nearly 19 years, nearly 25 years if you go all the way back to the house, I am committed to teaching what the Bible actually says. I try very hard not to say extra biblical things. So I'm not going to preach the connection of the household of Caesar this morning. But I'm going to encourage you, if you get curious, to go to Google and look up Herodoc, who is also named Caractacus, that's his Latin name, and you will find that this Caradoc, who actually history does record, he actually existed, he lived in southern England, a Silurian king who was ultimately conquered by Rome. And when he was brought to Rome and paraded through the streets in order to demonstrate Roman dominion over England, he made such an impassioned speech to the Caesar that rather than kill him, the Caesar allowed him to live in Rome there as long as he swore he would never take up arms against Rome again. But when he came before Caesar, something happened that was technically illegal in Rome. A woman was not allowed to come in and testify or be part of that process. But his daughter, Caractacus's daughter, so loved her father that she refused to let go of him and ended up in front of Caesar along with her father. Caesar Claudius was so impressed with her He ended up adopting her. Her adopted name is Claudia. That's the Claudia that is probably being referred to here. Her brother is Linus, not the one from Peanuts. Her brother is Linus, 
who was the first bishop at Rome. History tells us that. He was probably installed as first bishop of Rome by Paul himself. So we're really talking about people here who not only have household of Caesar connections, but have connections with Paul, and therefore the church at Rome was able to thrive. If you get curious about any more of that stuff, I will warn you in advance. The brief version I just gave to you can be recorded in history. The, the impassioned speech that Caradoc made is recorded in history. His daughter not leaving him is recorded in history. In fact, Tacitus, the Roman historian, writes about it. And so we, we know that stuff. But then, as you look at that stuff on the internet, I will forewarn you that you're going to bump into a lot of what's known as British Israelism. Because in Britain, Christianity seems to have already existed by the time Caradoc was coming to Rome. I won't go into the history and the background and how that happened, but I will tell you that British Israelism has gone so far off the historic path that it even reaches the point of being pretty um, heretical. So you got to be careful what you're reading, but there is a whole lot of evidence historically to say that Christianity in England was brought to some extent to Rome by Caradoc and his family. Did I do that fairly? Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. And now you're all going to go home and hit Google and say, what was Jim talking about? So that's the end of the first quarter of this chapter. And now Paul is going to put some warnings in place. Now that he has mentioned all the people who he approves of, now that he has mentioned all the names of people who he says are workers in the Lord, or they have worked hard in the Lord, or they are a servant of the church, he says this as a way of recommendation of all these people he has listed. But now, just like he did with Timothy, he also has to hand out a warning that you can't just believe everybody who's talking about Christ. Because many of them are going to make up their own stuff or try to draw you away from the sound doctrine, and you have to be careful. So he says, I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions, divisions within the church, and hindrances or stumbling blocks that are contrary to the teaching which you have learned. So he's saying, this whole letter, I have spelled out a teaching, a doctrine. This very long treatise has been for the purpose of telling you what the proper understanding of Christianity actually is. But now be careful because there are people who are going to disagree and they're going to cause dissensions and they're going to lay out stumbling blocks in front of you contrary to the doctrine contrary to the teaching contrary to the teaching that you have learned and look what he says about them he doesn't say listen to them and entertain them he doesn't say uh, find out if they have a good point listen for a while so that you can understand it instead he says get away from them turn away from them 
Paul's attitude is, as soon as you hear somebody teaching something contrary to the Pauline teaching, get away from them. In the book of Galatians, it's their anathema. If they are fit for burning, they're certainly not somebody that you need to be listening to. If they come into the church and they create a dissension, a division, if they create a sect, if they break off from the regular, true, genuine, Pauline doctrine, then they are actually laying a stumbling block in front of you. The NASB says they are hindrances to you. Rather than you continuing in the way of Christ and understanding the doctrine of Christ, they are actually pulling you backwards. They're hindering you. They're tripping you up with their opinions or with their ideas of what the doctrine ought to be. Contrary to the teaching which you have learned and turn away from them. Why? He says, because those people are not slaves to Christ. Notice as he was commending people at the beginning of this chapter, how he kept saying they are slaves. They are fellow slaves. They are fellow workers. They are servants. He's using that servant and slave and worker language in commending all those people. But those people who were teaching a false doctrine, he says, they are not slaves to Christ. If they were indeed slave to Christ, they would follow the doctrine of Christ. And I have just laid out for you what the doctrine of Christ is. Therefore, if somebody comes along and tries to trip you up or move you backwards with some other teaching, get away from them because such men are slaves, not to the Lord Jesus Christ, but to their own ego, to their own appetite is the word in the NASB. It means that they have desire. Their desire is to be somebody. Their desire is to have followers who will follow after them, who will think that they are some important person. And so for that reason, they will create unique or made-up doctrines that are not the same as the Pauline doctrines. And so for that reason, because of their appetite, they become slaves to themselves rather than slaves of Christ. Now, look, we're only talking about your ever-living, never-dying soul. We're only talking about where you're going to spend eternity. Therefore, you should pay attention to everything that the Bible says about God and doctrine and what you should believe and what your behavior as the church ought to be. If someone comes along who is slave to their own appetite whose desire is to make themselves greater, whose desire is to bring followers to themselves, that's not somebody who's caring for your ever-living, never-dying soul. That's somebody who primarily cares about their own ego, about their own reputation, about their own pride. So Paul takes the time to warn the church about such people because they existed then, and I think we can safely say they exist now, just turn on the TV. Such men are slaves, not of our Lord Jesus Christ, but of their own appetites. And how are they going to draw you away? By their smooth and flattering speech. Flattering speech. Interesting. Let's take that apart for just a moment. 
What does it mean to flatter somebody? It means to say such good and glowing things about them that they feel good about themselves and they become more attracted to you because they like the way they feel when they're around you. They just feel better about themselves because you're willing to say how wonderful they are. The genuine doctrine that Paul has laid out is there's none that does good. No, not one. That's the Pauline doctrine. The flattering doctrine would be God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Flattering speech would be God is up there trying to have a love relationship with you, but you just have to let him. You just have to choose Jesus because it's really all up to you. It's all about you. And why does God want you? Because he was lonely and it wouldn't be heaven without you. And he needed somebody to have relationship with. And you're the perfect person. That's why he made you was so that you could have it. You get what I'm saying? That's flattering speech. If I say you are so worthy. You know why Jesus died for you? There's actually a song, a quote-unquote Christian song that actually says, Jesus died for me because I'm worth it. That's flattering speech. If you think you're the important one in the relationship between you and God and somebody is telling you that you are the important one in that relationship, that is flattering speech. And with that sort of flattering speech and smooth words, they attract people. They draw people in. They convince people that God just loves them and they don't have to change. They just have to make a little profession. They just have to make Jesus Lord and Savior. And then they are just in. They're going to heaven guaranteed because they did the stuff. They made the profession. They did the choosing. They did all the stuff that makes God required to now save them and give them glory forever. That's flattering speech. And again, it's pervasive in the church right now. It runs rampant in what calls itself Christianity these days. And Paul right here took the time to warn, if you hear that, that's not the real doctrine, run away from it. So then the people who are convinced by it and who are drawn by it are not actually exercising Pauline Christianity. They're exercising the opposite of Pauline Christianity because Paul points it out and says, get away from that. Don't be part of that. I urge you, brethren, keep an eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you have learned and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. Some of your translations will say, they deceive the hearts of the ignorant. They deceive the hearts of people who don't know what's happening to them. Look, let's put it this way. So some people get up one day and they say, for whatever reason, they decide, I'm going to go to church. And they just assume that when they go to church, they're going to hear about the Bible. I'm going to go to church because, well... 
It's Christmas. It's coming up in a couple of days. Bunches and bunches of people are going to go to church who don't go to church the whole rest of the year, save Easter. But they're going to go to church because it's Christmas. And their family, as a group, they're going to go to church. And they're going to assume that whatever church they walk into is going to tell them about Jesus in a manger and going to teach them something from the Bible. They know that going in. Those are the people who Paul refers to as the unsuspecting. They're, they're just walking in wanting to hear something because, well, it's Christmas. And if they get taught something other than the Pauline doctrine, if they get taught the standard American diet of Christian beliefs, if they are flattered, if they are told smooth words to try to make them feel good and maybe they'll come back next week, if that's all they get is essentially pablum rather than real good biblical food, well, then they're being led astray, and it's not really their fault. It's the fault of the men who are trying to gain followers to themselves because their appetite drives them. Their ego drives them. They want more followers. Therefore, they're willing to say anything if it'll just get you to come back next week. So the unsuspecting end up being deceived in their hearts. Those teachers of false doctrine who are led by their appetite rather than their servanthood to Christ. Those people are going to deceive the heart of those who are unsuspecting. For the report of your obedience, look at the contrast. Paul now writing to the church at Rome says the report of your obedience remember last week we talked about this word obedience Paul uses it a couple of different ways in fact in verse 31 he says he wanted to be delivered from those who are disobedient in Judea so he's talking about obedience to the Christian faith and he's saying you at Rome your obedience to the Christian faith is reported and has reached all the other churches they know about you for the report of your obedience has reached to all. And therefore, I am rejoicing over you. But I want you to be wise in what is good. In this context, I believe that Paul is saying, I've laid out the teaching. I've laid out the doctrine. I've laid out the behavior of Christianity. I want you to have understanding for those of you who have been following our Proverbs study and the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, you know that Paul pulling out this word wise, I want you to be wise, means I want you to have a deep knowledge, a deep understanding of these things, what things, the things that are good. I really want you to understand that. But if you hang around and you listen to those people who are led by their appetite, you're going to hear a lot of things that are not sound doctrine. And therefore, I want you to be completely unaware of that stuff. I want you to be innocent of what is evil. I want you to be really wise, really intelligent, really thoughtful about those things that constitute goodness within Christianity. Those things are sound doctrine. Those things are love of the brethren. Those things are proper Christian behavior. I want you to be wise, knowledgeable, understanding of those kind of things. But when it comes to those things that are evil, I, I want you to be simple. 
I want you to be innocent. I don't want you to know that stuff. And, verse 20, and the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. If you are innocent, if you don't have a deep knowledge experientially or intellectually of evil things, you can rest because it's God himself who's going to take care of the evil problem. God himself is going to crush Satan. He's going to crush him under your feet. He's going to be no longer an entity, no longer an influence in life on planet Earth. And that's coming. We already know prophetically. We even know in the New Testament, book of Revelation, when we finally see that God throws Satan down into the earth and that he's railing because he knows he has but a short time. We already know that God is going to accomplish the finishing of Satan, ultimately throwing him into the lake of fire. So then you don't need to know, according to Paul, you don't need to know all that stuff because it's not up to you. You don't need to go dip your toe in all the evil of this world. You don't need to go and listen to all of the philosophy of this world that is anti-Christian. You don't need to go and experience all the perverse things of this world. If you think you're being clever or intellectual or knowledgeable by understanding those things, you know, know your enemy. If you think that's the way you're supposed to be, Paul says, no, you're supposed to be exactly the opposite of that. You're supposed to be very wise in the good things, in the knowledge of what Christianity is, in the knowledge of what the word of God says. You're supposed to be very intelligent when it comes to all that. But when it comes to the wickedness and the evil of this world, you're supposed to be like a newborn babe, completely innocent. No knowledge, no understanding of it. Turn away from that that is evil. Be knowledgeable of what is good. And as far as the evil stuff and the satanic stuff, it is God himself who is going to crush Satan under your feet. God will do it. And if he's got it, don't you have any part of it? See the difference? Yes, sir. The God of peace will crush Satan under your feet. And the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Notice that little benediction right there because it's going to come up again in a moment and we'll talk about it when it does. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Now, starting at verse 21, Paul is going to start saying that people who are with him send their greetings to the churches in Rome. But I noticed before we get to that, that I sort of skipped over one little thing in verse 16. I read it out, but then I began talking about false teachers. And I skipped over the instruction to greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Sadly, in this day and age, if we followed that directive, it would be questioned by our society. And that's a sad thing. I remember, not to tell Elder Ward stories again, but I remember being with Elder Ward once and him saying that it was such a shame that homosexuality in our society had become so pervasive or 
such a thing that we're all conscious and aware of, which Paul just told us we're supposed to be innocent of, but we're so aware of it that if Leon walked through the front door one day and suddenly Micah kissed him on the cheek, I think Leon would kind of step back a moment and go, okay, what's going on? And yet the instruction is to greet one another with a holy kiss. I've told you before that the first time I ever went to Main Street, there were several people, even people I didn't know, who came and kissed me on the cheek. And it surprised me the first time or two that it happened. And then I realized that they were indeed following the direction that the Bible gives. The whole idea of a holy kiss is that you're recognizing each other as brethren, each other as family, and recognizing your genuine care, concern, and love for one another. There's nothing sexual about it. There's nothing about it that is in any way questionable. And yet if the outside world looking in saw us doing that, they would immediately pounce on it as another way to criticize Christianity. I say whether or not Micah decides to plant a kiss on the cheek of Leon, I say we nevertheless should show outward signs of fellowship and concern and love for one another in the way we treat each other, in the way we talk to each other, in the way we benefit each other, in the way we lift each other up, in the ways that we encourage each other. And if in the midst of that kind of love and fellowship, somebody kisses you on the cheek, then you'll understand how completely acceptable that is. Make sense? Yes. All right. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you, starting at verse 21. Timothy, my fellow worker, notice that again, slave, worker, servant of the church. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. That's the same Timothy he wrote to when we read 2 Timothy. And so do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, Greet you in the Lord. So now we know who the amanuensis was. We know who the secretary was who actually wrote whatever Paul dictated. It was this fellow Tertius, and he figures since he did this much writing, at the very end he also ought to say, oh, and by the way, from me, hi, how are you? (laughs) I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, greets you, and Quartus, the brother. Now, verse 24, in some of your translations, you'll see that it says the same thing we just read. It's the same benediction that we read a moment ago. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Some of the oldest Greek manuscripts don't have that there. All Greek manuscripts do have it in what we call verse 20. It does exist there. But it looks like at some early point, some copyist looking back and forth and writing moved that statement to here as well, probably just copyist error, but that everybody who copied from his copy repeated that same thing. But in the earliest Greek manuscripts, that doesn't exist right there. Importantly, however, even though 
that is apparently a copyist error, you'll notice that it does absolutely no damage to anything theologically. It's completely meaningless because it is something that was said earlier in the letter, earlier in the same paragraph, in fact, it was said. So the fact that it got said a second time but may or may not actually belong there, like Conrad just put his hands up like, so what? But I'm just telling you so that you understand why some translations, like the NASB, have brackets around verse 24. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. And now begins the final closing doxology, the final benediction. And Paul, who can't seem to help himself, launches in yet again to deep theology. Instead of just saying, okay, thou, I've said what I've got to say, bye-bye, hope you're all well, see you later. Instead, he closes his letter with some of the deepest theology you're going to find anywhere in the Bible. He starts by saying what he has said through this whole letter, that you yourself are a sinner, you yourself have no goodness, have no holiness, have no quality that would cause God to choose you, that God elected you and established you for his own sake. He sums that all up like this. Now, to him, that is God, God and Christ, now to him who is able to establish you. What a wonderful thing to say. Now to God who is able to set you up in heavenly places. Now to God who is, to, who is able to keep you firmly in the faith. Now to God who is able to make you stand up and not waver. He establishes you. And how does that happen? Considering the fact that earlier Paul has already told you that there's none that doeth good, no, not one. Now that he's already established that you were an enemy of God before he chose you, now that he's already established that there's no goodness within you, how in the world are you going to make it all the way to heaven? How are you going to persevere in the faith? How can you know for sure that you are saved through all of eternity? How can you know that? You get your eyes off you, and you put your eyes on the one who chose you, who elected you, and who established you. The only reason that you are established in heaven is because God himself wrote your name down in the Lamb's book of life. That establishes you. You're on the rolls. The only reason that you get up every day and still have a conscience about the things of God is because, as we already read from the book of Colossians nearly an hour ago, Jesus made everything for his own sake and everything exists for him. Everything came through him and ultimately exists for him. Therefore, he's the one who establishes you day by day by day by day. The only reason you wake up with a knowledge that maybe you could actually be eternally secure is because he established you. Yeah, and call out the maybe on that one. The only reason that you wake up every day knowing your own name and looking forward to one day going home. The only reason you believe that Christ is going to crack the sky and that he's coming back to get some people and you plan to be among that number, the only reason that you have any knowledge of what's going on in the Bible and can read it and find comfort and faith and reassurance and hope is because God himself established you in the faith. 
That's your surety. That's your guarantee. So Paul can't say goodbye without saying, now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul is saying, the reason that he worked so hard to bring the gospel to the Gentile nations, the reason that he took all the beatings and the jailings and the stonings and all that, the reason that he only wants to go to places where Jesus has never been mentioned before and he doesn't want to build on any other man's foundation, the inspiration to go out and preach that gospel and preach that gospel is because through that means... Through that exercise of continually preaching the gospel and preaching Jesus Christ, through that some people come to faith and are established by God for all of eternity. The method that God chose to use in establishing people is the preaching of the gospel, the teaching of Jesus Christ. That's why we do what we do. We just keep teaching it and teaching it and teaching it Because that is the method that God has ordained to use in order to bring people to salvation. The preaching of the gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. According to the revelation of the mystery. Wait, you're saying goodbye. Why are you bringing up revelations and mysteries? Okay, so what revelation and mystery is he probably talking about here? The mystery that he has already mentioned in the book of Revelation is the fact that the Jewish Messiah is busy saving Gentiles. That's the mystery that he's already laid out. And so as he's writing to some Gentiles in Rome, he can bring up the fact that the revelation of the mystery, the revealing, the uncovering, the apocalypsis of this mystery of Gentiles being brought to faith and given eternal life through a Jewish Messiah, he says that mystery has been kept secret for long ages past. Remember, he's already talked about the Jew-Gentile distinction. He's already talked about the againstness between the Jews and the Gentiles. Why did the Jews hate the Gentiles? Why did the Gentiles hate the Jews? Even though it was already written in the scripture that the Gentiles were going to be saved, that reality, that mystery, had been hidden for long ages past. God kept that reality hidden so that people wouldn't get it until Christ came. This mystery has been kept secret for long ages past, but now it's happening. Now it's manifested. And by the scriptures, by the scriptures, how often does Paul go back to, but by the scriptures, by the word of God, by the Bible, by the understanding of what this Bible actually says, by the scriptures of the prophets. So the writing of the prophets contained the mystery that had been hidden from people for long ages past, which is now actually happening and manifest, and you can actually see it. Paul has a funny way of saying goodbye. (laughs) It's now manifested, and by the scriptures of the prophets... According to the commandment of the eternal God. Okay, so this is all God's plan. Everything from the preaching of Jesus Christ and bringing people to faith through the preaching of the gospel. 
all the way down to the mystery that's already been laid out in the scripture of the prophets, which was hidden for long ages past, but now is made manifest. All of that, he says, is according to the commandment of the eternal God. As you're walking out time and history, you are walking out the plan of an eternal God. That same eternal God has told us what he plans to do in the future. And the very fact that we can already see the manifestation of what the prophets have said concerning the mystery of the Gentiles ought to give us more confidence that God is going to do absolutely everything else he said. Which would mean things like he's coming back. Which would mean things like he's going to crack the sky. Which would mean things like we're going to go to glory. Which would mean things like he went away to make a place for us so that where he is we may also be. All of that is according to the commandment, to the judgments, to the plan, to the determination of the eternal God who's in control of human history. So according to the commandment of the eternal God, this mystery has been made known to all the Gentiles, leading to, there's that word obedience, leading to the obedience of faith. The very fact that Gentiles, the very fact that Jeff, the very fact that Olivia, the very fact that Betty, the very fact that anybody in this room has come to faith in Jesus Christ, according to Paul, is according to the eternal plan of an eternal God who knew from the very beginning exactly what he was going to do and who he was going to call, who he was going to elect, who he was going to predestine, who he was going to justify, who he was going to glorify. And because he knew all of that, this knowledge that you now have, that you are saved and that Gentiles are being saved, that knowledge, that understanding of these things that are written by the prophets is because the great eternal God decided from eternity ago that he was going to reveal it to you right now. You get that? Yes, sir. The fact that you know what you know is because God decided way back when that you were going to know this now. That's hard to wrap your head around. You got to duct tape your head closed to kind of contain that. But the great eternal God determined at this very time to make this known to the Gentile nations leading to their obedience to the faith, the faith of Jesus Christ, the faith that is the teaching of the Bible, of the New Testament, of the gospel. That teaching, that doctrine, that faith is something that God determined you were going to come to and he determined it long, long ago. And Paul knows that God determined it long, long ago because he told it to the prophets. The proof is already there. It's already written down. God demonstrated that he knew this was going to happen by writing it in the prophets. But not only did he write it in the prophets, he then sealed it to keep it a secret while it was written by the prophets so that it could then be manifested once Christ came and then the nations would know it even though it's written in the Old Testament by the prophets, even though people didn't get it when it was written by the prophets, even though God had determined it since forever ago and wrote it down to prove that this is what he was going to do. Which means you right now, walking, talking, having faith, 
are the continual demonstration of God, the eternal God, doing exactly what he said he was going to do way back when. You get that? When you go back and read many of the quotes that Paul quoted here, but you can go back in the Old Testament and you can read from Isaiah and you can read from Ezekiel. You can read Jeremiah in the New Covenant and you can, you can read about nations, Gentiles, Goyim coming to faith in God, faith in Christ. You can read about that and then you can see in the New Testament how the church branched out from Jerusalem to the Gentile nations and how people came to faith. And then you bring that all the way down to yourself and you recognize that people still today, their eyes are being opened and their hearts are being changed from stony to accepting that people are understanding the things of God at this very moment through the preaching of the gospel, through the preaching of Christ, through the reading of the word. People are still of the Gentile nations still coming to faith in Christ. And Paul says that is all according to what the eternal God determined to do. Yes. Cool, huh? <laughs> yeah. So bye-bye. <laughs> so it's just great theology that Paul kind of uses as a summary statement here at the end of his letter. We're nearly done. This is all one sentence. Now that we kind of understand it, let's read it as one sentence. Verse 25. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, this has been made known to all nations, leading to obedience of the faith to the only wise God through Jesus Christ. Be the glory forever. Amen. Amen. In other words, that entire sentence and all of that theology was all for the purpose of saying God gets the glory. Whatever's going on here, whatever faith, Jew or Gentile, people coming to Christ, all of that is to God's glory. He gets all the glory for it. He gets all the praise. He gets all the worship for it because this was his great eternal plan since he is the great eternal God. And it all happened according to the commandment of an eternal God. And therefore, you ought to praise and worship and glorify that God. Because if you know anything, I keep saying, if you know anything about Christ today, if you are trusting in Christ, if you are resting in Christ for your eternity, that is according to the plan of the great eternal God. And if you can ever get a hold of that, you will get on your face in front of that God. You will worship and praise that God. And you'll get over yourself. And you'll recognize that if it weren't for him doing everything, 
all the choosing, all the electing, all the justifying. If he hadn't sent his son, if that sacrifice had not been made, if God had not done everything necessary for your full, complete redemption and salvation, you would not be saved today. You would not have any confidence today. You would not have any hope today. You would not have any knowledge or wisdom today. The only reason that you're walking, talking Christian right now is because the God of forever decided forever ago that you were going to end up right here, right now, coming to faith in his son and obedience to that faith. Amen. Amen. That's why Paul ends with, Amen. That, my friends, is the book of Romans. So are you curious where we're going to start next week? Isaiah. No, Isaiah is after we do our topical messages. Well, if you want to know what's happening next week, you'll just have to come back next week and find out. I know, but I'm not telling. I'll give you this clue, though. We're going back to the beginning. Hymn 100, turn there. It's just fitting from the verse we just finished to him be the glory forever and ever that we sing, O come, let us adore him.
Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace morning message. We invite you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates, books, Q&As and our ever-expanding audio archive. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His sovereign grace.